Well, welcome to Emmanuel Church. How are you doing today? I am excited to be here with you. Hey, if this is your first time at any one of our campuses here at Greenwood, Banta Franklin, if you're watching online at the first time, Theodora House, Purdue Microsite, we want to welcome all of our first-time guests. Can we give it up for them really quick? Awesome. Thank you so much for accepting someone's invitation, for checking us out. Uh, we hope that you, you have such a great time and you hear something that connects with you that you'll come back next week and dive into some more content. And so that's our hope for you today. And I do want to welcome everyone watching online and all of our campuses and our microsites. It's so exciting to be joining you today. We're wrapping up a series today called Mind Games. This is week number four of this series. You guys enjoy the series if you've been coming? Been helpful to you? Awesome. I've had a lot of positive feedback and encouragement, and it's been a blessing to be able to deliver this content to you as well. It's been helpful to me. And so essentially what we've been talking about is the power of the mind and how powerful our thoughts are. And we said that the quality of our life really is a byproduct of the quality of our thoughts. And how many of you believe that? Your thoughts shape your life. Yeah, absolutely. It really does. The Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius, who was also a philosopher, he said this, the soul becomes dyed with the color of It's thoughts. Whoa, we just went deep. (laughs) Our lives are shaped by our our thoughts. The Apostle Paul wrote these words in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. He said, set your minds on things above, not on things on earth. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, he said, we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, he says, whatever is true and honorable and right and just and pure and lovely and excellent or admirable, if there's anything excellent or worthy of praise, think about these things. The thoughts are mine, powerful. God made us that way. He made us in such a way that our thoughts shape our emotions and our emotions drive our behavior and our lives can be changed by the way that we think. We're aware of that. Most of us are. And so is our enemy, the devil. Peter says he roams around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Jesus said he exists to steal, kill, and destroy our lives. So if he were going to try to hurt us, where would he attack us? At the level of what? Our minds, yes or no, yes? That's exactly what he does. He comes at us with lies. He's a liar and the father of lies. And his goal is to create a stronghold. His goal is to cut us off from the life that Jesus came to bring us. Not just going to heaven when we die, but a life filled with joy and peace and meaning and purpose right now. And he does that by lying to us. And he builds these internal prisons, these strongholds that trap us in fear or trap us in anger or trap us in materialism, or envy, or covetousness, or or lust. And we're cut off from the eternal life that Jesus Christ has come to give us. And all we we said in this series is that if we are going to fight the enemy, if we are going to defeat the enemy and tear down those strongholds, we have to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Jesus. What did Jesus say? He said, if you're truly my disciples, when you remain in my teachings, and then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you Free. Free from what? Free from the lies of the enemy, the strongholds from the enemy. We literally tear down the strongholds of our enemy with the truth of God's word. So we've been looking at some lies in this series. The first one we said, hey, don't take your faith too seriously, right? Well, it'll always be this way. That was week number two. And last week we said, it's supposed to be easy. We've been looking at each one of these lies and we've been tearing it down with the truth of God's word. Today we're going to look at a fourth lie. That's perhaps the the, the most common lie that we hear and probably has the most devastating consequences. 
if we buy into it. And this is the lie right here, week number four, the fourth lie. You're not good enough. You're not good enough. Not skinny enough, pretty enough, not smart enough, experienced enough, strong enough, fast enough, tall enough, big enough, wealthy enough, successful enough. You've heard it. You know it's, you have your unique tailored way of hearing this lie. For some of us, it came, it started in childhood with our parents, and our parents would get on us, and they'd want us to get better grades, and want us to perform better at work, or at school, or whatever, and on a sports team, and maybe you had brothers or sisters that did well, or started in the home for some of us. For others, it came from friends. Our friends, you know, tell us, they make comments about our physical appearance or things, that our skill set or whatever, our intelligence level, and they'd make comments and we'd get the message that we're not good enough from our friends. For some of us, it's from a coach. I remember for, for myself, I, mean, I remember hearing my coach say things like, you know, hey, you need to improve in this area, this area, this area, you know, whether it was baseball or basketball or whatever sport it was. The message was a constant, hey, you're not good enough got to keep improving, keep improving, keep improving. Some of that's positive, some of that's negative. Coaches, teachers, I don't know where the message came from for you predominantly, but I know that it's hit you because it's a, it's a powerful message that the enemy loves to leverage. To what? To cut you off from the life that God has planned for you. You know what makes this message even, even more powerful? The fact that we live in a culture of comparison. We really do. We're always comparing ourselves to other people. What they have, what they look like, what they own, what they drive, where they live, how their kids look, <laughs> how smart their children are. Oh, must be nice, you know, whatever. We're just comparing, comparing ourselves to other people and their face, their shape, how they look. It's amazing. Sometimes I'll be walking in the mall, not a lot, I mean, I don't do it a lot, but if I'm walking with my wife in the mall or somewhere in public, I will literally see other women look my wife up and down. Not in a sexual way, just in a, just in a, oh, yeah, okay. Boots, blouse. It cracks me up, you know, and guys do the same thing. We do the same thing. I do the same thing. Other dudes. I like to work out and stay in shape, so I go to the gym a lot. And sometimes I'll just, I'll just be pumping iron or whatever and trying to. <laughs> and I'll see, I'll see some other dude, and his arms are like twice the size of mine. And I'm like, <laughs> just comparing myself. It's like, dude, you got, you got some work to do, right? Sometimes it's a girl. Sometimes I'll, I'll see a girl, her arms are twice the size of mine. I'm like, man. Just, I fall right into it. I fall right into the comparison, you know, just comparing myself with other people and what they have and how they look and what they've done with their life and compared to my age, people in my age group, you know. Comparison. I came across a quote the other day. Yolanda, I can't say her name, Vincent, she said, comparison is an act of violence against the self. It was such a powerful quote, it gripped me. The word violence jumped out at me. I wrote a little blog post about it. You could check it out on dannyanderson.net, a little shameless plug there. Um, it, just, it, just, it just grabbed me. It's like, wow, I've never heard it said like that. Comparison is an act of violence against the self. Why? Because think about it. 
Can, can you really be a, a, a person filled with joy and at the same time be comparing yourself with other people? And what they have and the marriage they have and the kids they have and the homes they have and the cars they have and the, the way they dress and look. And, can you be joyful? Can you have a heart of gratitude and at the same time be, be comparing yourself? Yes or no? Absolutely not. It just creates and cultivates envy and jealousy, this whole comparison thing. But I think the, the most damage that it does to the soul is when, is when we, it just reinforces this message that you're not enough. Look at what she has. Look at how she dresses. Look at how, he, how much money he has or the kind of car she drives or whatever. And it, it just reinforces this message that, see, you're not enough. And social media has made this whole thing much, much worse, hasn't it? We get on there and we look at people's Instagram accounts or their Twitter accounts. And what we're seeing are people's highlight reels. Yes? We're not seeing real life. Don't be fooled. These pictures have, have been doctored and they've been taken 15 times. Why? To put their best foot forward. And then we look at the highlight reel and then we're in our PJs and we, all, we look ugly and, and we haven't showered and we're like. <laughs> yes or no? Yes or no? And what? We feel like we're not enough. I've seen four toxic responses to this, to this message. And you tell me if you've fallen into one of these. One of these is, is, is I've, I'll share which one for me. In response to this message, if you're not good enough, number one, some people just give up. Like, look, I'm not enough, so I'll just throw the towel in. Fine. I'll just resign myself to a life of defeat. I'll never be enough. We stop trying. Give up on ourselves. Stop taking care of ourselves. Stop trying. No motivation. Some people respond that way. Maybe you have. Other people resort to simply rebelling. They just, you know, they're like, look, if I'm not good enough, <laughs> if you won't accept me, if, if you won't believe in me, then I will really show you how, how bad I am. <laughs> and they'll turn to drugs and alcohol and other things to, to what, to just almost get back at their parents or get back at a coach or get back at a teacher. It's really a cry for help, of it, for attention. And there's just this just rebellion that comes out. Okay, if I'm not good enough, I'm going to show you. I'm really not going to be good enough. And then some people, number three, they turn to self-hatred. I've seen this before. It's like the message comes in, you're not good enough. Not, so, and they start to turn on themselves. Well, if I'm not good enough, then... And I don't even like, I don't even like myself. And you, you hang there for a while and eventually, and eventually it could get even darker and turn to self-harm and, and cutting and abusing yourself, which could eventually lead to, to, to suicide and dark, dark hole. All a response to this message of you're not good enough. Have you been there? Do you know someone, someone there right now in your life? Are you there right now? Self-hatred. And this fourth one, I think, is, is, is one that different personalities kind of fall prey to. I certainly have. It's just to become obsessed. You hear the message, and you become absolutely obsessed with, with becoming good enough. Oh, oh, you think I'm not good enough? Oh, okay. Give me six months. I'll be back. <laughs> I'm going to double down. I'm going to dig deep. I will show you that I am good enough. I fell, I fell into this one. My... I've two, got two older brothers, and um, I'm 41, Jason's 42, Jimmy's 43. We went through diapers together. We went through high school together. We went through life together. 
And I was always a little bit slower, a little bit shorter, a little bit skinnier, a little bit weaker. That's my life growing up, okay? Just the little brother syndrome. Anybody else? I feel for you, okay? And it was always just not good enough. You're not quite as good as your brother's. They both got Division I scholarships to play baseball at Long Island University, and they were really, really good at this and really, really good at that, and they're really, really smart, and they got straight A's, and then there's me. Right? And so the message would come like, hey, dude, you, why, you know, why don't you want like your brothers? Message, interpretation, I'm not good enough. You know what I did? I became obsessed. Oh, you don't think I'm good enough? You wait and see. I quit baseball. I, I devoted myself to basketball. I said, I'm going to become the best basketball player. I'm going to be better than them. I'm going to be taller than them. Like I was in control of that. I'm going to be. <laughs> and I doubled down and I tripled down and I dug deep. And you know what? I was pretty successful. But it didn't work. And I'll get to that in just a little bit. But these, these are the people that, that are successful in business, they're successful in life because they are driven from within to do what? To answer the question and to prove to people that yes, they are in fact good enough. They will use a business to do it, a marriage to do it. They will use their children to do it. Their performance of their kids. They'll use their children to answer the question that they are good enough. Have you seen my kids? <laughs> sick. I'm sick. Anybody else sick? <laughs> Toxic toxic responses to this message. Now, here's, here's, what's, here's what's weird. I'm going to say something that's going to sound like I'm, I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth, and I, I, I'm not, so hang with me, okay? But here's what's really interesting about this, this whole concept of you're not good enough. It's actually true. Hang with me. Hang with me. Think about it. Think about real life. Try out for the team. You're excited. You think you're going to make it. High school team, college team, whatever. And then the day comes out where the coach puts the list of names on the board and your name's not on it. What's the message? What's the truth? You're not good enough. See, you weren't tall enough. You weren't fast enough. You weren't strong enough. Right? You don't make the team. That's reality, folks. So the truth is you're not good enough, right? Then, you, you know, you, you try to get into a certain college. You need the right ACT score, SAT scores. Well, you apply to this college, that college. And the college that you really wanted to get into sends a, a letter back, and the, and the letter says, you've been rejected. Why? Because your scores were not high enough. What's the, what's the message? You're not, say it with me, good enough. Right? That's the world we live in. You apply for the job, and you hope to get it. You know, other people have applied for the same position, and you put your experience on there. You put your education on there, and you're really hopeful that you're going to get it. You get a letter back. You get a phone call back. Hey, uh, we, we chose to go with somebody else. Wow. What happened? Well, she had more experience. She had more skills. This was the person that fit better for the job. Message, you are not good enough. You apply for the loan because you want to get the house and you're so excited and you, and you put your, you know, all your records in there and they do the credit check and they come back and they deny you the loan. Why? Because your credit score is what? Say it with me. Not good enough. See, we live in a harsh world where it's actually true that in many ways we're not good enough. Now, even if you're one of those people that you had sterling credit and, and your SAT score was, you know, 1250, <laughs> and you got into the school, and you got the job, and you got the home, and you got the house, even if you're one of those folks, someday, pay attention, someday someone's going to say to you, someone much younger than you, is going to say, hey, 
Your best days are behind you, bud. Guess what? It's time to hang it up because you're no longer good enough. Your skills have dropped off. And then we turn to the Bible and we're like, well, maybe God accepts us. Maybe God says we're good enough. What do you think? Is, isn't he like love and isn't God supposed to love us? Like by default, his nature is love and he, he's supposed to say you're good enough. And what we find out is that even God says, no, you're not good enough. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says it this way. For everyone has sinned, we fall short of God's glorious standard. <sighs> King Solomon wrote it this way in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. He said, not a single person, not Billy Graham, not Mother Teresa, not the holiest person who's ever walked this planet is always good and never sins. So we turn to God and we're like, God, do you think I'm good enough? And he says, no. Is anybody else thoroughly discouraged today? Aren't you glad you came to church? (laughs) Not even God says you're good enough. Like, well, I thought he gave us the Ten Commandments to try to help us be good enough. Have you ever tried to keep the Ten Commandments? Seriously, have you ever tried to keep five of them? (laughs) No, the Ten Commandments are not there to help us become good. The Ten Commandments are there to show us that we will never be able to be good enough. That's what they're like a mirror. They just show us our condition. Not good enough. No, the lie is not that you're not good enough. The lie is a little bit more subtle than that. It's actually, here's what the devil does. The devil doesn't just blatantly lie to us. He, he takes a, a truth and then he twists it subtly. Let me show you. Here's the real lie. You will never be good enough. It's just a subtle twist of the truth. No, you, you and I, are, we're not good enough. And the devil comes on top of that and he says... And on top of that, you'll never be good enough. In other words, not good enough is your permanent state. And that's bad news if it's true. But I'm so glad to stand here today on behalf of God and the Holy Spirit and the Son of God and say, it is not true. It is a lie. You want to know the truth? The truth is this. You are good enough in Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. The gospel starts with bad news. I mean, there is no good news without bad news. Like, we're in trouble. We're not good enough. And then the good news is that we can become good enough in Christ. There's a great story in the Bible about a guy named Matthew. Some of you have heard this story before, Luke chapter 5. Jesus is walking down the road. He's recruiting his disciples. He says to Matthew, come follow me. The issue is that Matthew was one of the worst people alive at that time. He was a tax collector. He was a Jewish man living in a Jewish community, working for the Roman government. He was a traitor and a thief. Because what the tax collectors back in those days would do is that they would overcharge 20%, 30%, 40%. Then they would pay the Roman government and they would pocket the difference. They would steal from their own people. And everybody knew it and no one could do anything about it. There were no regulations. The Roman government didn't care. They just wanted their money. So they let the tax collectors gouge the wages and charge whatever they wanted. And so the tax collectors, they were hated. They were not just not good enough. They were the worst. They were the scum of the earth. They were put in the category of prostitutes. They were the bottom of the barrel people in the community of Jesus' day. And Jesus is walking down the road and he looks at a tax collector named Matthew and he says, come follow me and be one of my disciples. Matthew gets up. 
He's never experienced grace from a religious person before. He's only received condemnation. He's only received the message that you're one of the not good enough ones. You're an outsider. Jesus says, no, I want you to become an insider. And Matthew drinks in grace and experiences mercy. What does he do in response? He throws a party. And he invites all of his tax collector, scum of the earth, scum of the earth friends. And they all show up and they're there. Jesus is the honored guest. Matthew wants his friends to experience the grace that he experienced in Jesus. And guess who sees it all go down? The pastors, the clergy, the men of the cloth, (laughs) the Pharisees and the scribes. Listen to what they say, Luke chapter 5. But the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders, they complained to Jesus' disciples, why does he eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? What is he doing? Why is he? Doesn't he know that those who are good enough, rabbis, teachers, Pharisees, scribes, they don't mix with those who are not good enough, tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes. What is he doing? This was a totally social taboo. It was actually illegal for rabbis to do this. Why is he eating with them? Doesn't he understand that a a, a meal together with with a tax collector, with a sinner, is a sign of acceptance, which it was in that culture back then? Even today, in some very strict Jewish communities, to have a meal with somebody is to say, I'm good with you. Like, I'm okay with you. I approve of you. Everything you're doing, how you're living, like, I'm all in with you. That's what a meal meant in those days. Why is he doing this? It's blowing their minds. Like those who are not good enough do not mingle with those who are good enough. Jesus responds. And and this could be the mission statement of our church. But it's a little bit too long to put on the wall. (laughs) He answered and he says, guys, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. I've not come to call those who are, quote, righteous or think they're righteous. I've come to call those who are, say it with me, sinners to repent. What does to repent mean? Repent means to turn away from the life they've been living. They know they're going the wrong direction and they need a doctor. I got to go to the doctor. I need healing for my soul. Are you self-aware enough to know that you are among the sick? Yes? I am. I stand before you as a sick person that the physician is taking care of. I visit the doctor every day, talk to the doctor, but I'm sick. Sick with sin, infected with it. Selfishness and pride and ego-centeredness. Comparing myself insecurities, all, all in your pastor's heart. I am sick. I'm not good enough. But the doctor came. The doctor came. And if you're self-aware enough to know that you're sick, the doctor's come. He's come for you. To do what? To make you whole. To make you good enough. But if you're one of those people who's like, well, I'm fine, dude. Like, I'm pretty good compared to him and him. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm good. Like, if you're among the righteous, you miss the gospel. It goes over your head. Jesus, you miss Jesus because you don't need a doctor because you're not sick. 
I love what Brendan Manning said in his book, A Glimpse of Jesus. Fantastic little read. He said these words. He said, the inclusion of sinners in the community of salvation achieved in table fellowship or sharing a meal is the most dramatic expression of the message of the redeeming love of the merciful God. If Jesus were here today, he'd have a meal with me. Not because I'm righteous, but because I'm sick. And if you're aware of your sickness, he would have a meal with you. And in that meal, he would say, you are good enough. I love what Tim Keller said about the gospel. It's, it's beautiful. Tim Keller said, the gospel is this, we are far more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. I believe that about myself. Far more sinful. I'm not just a sinner. I'm far more sinful than I ever dared believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Oh, I hope you can receive that word today. The gospel is for sinners. He came for the sick. The righteous don't need a doctor. The sick do. And that explains the answer to the question. Why is he eating with these tax collectors and sinners? I came for them. I came to take those who are not good enough and make them good enough. Now, how does that work? It's not automatic, you know. Just because Jesus came into the world doesn't make you good enough. A lot of, a lot of people just miss him. How does it actually work? Well, in a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in Corinth, he tells us, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Oh, I hope you can hear this. God the Father made Jesus the Son who had no sin, he was perfect, sinless. He was tempted in every way, just as we were, yet without sin. The Father made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for who? Us. See, on the cross, when Jesus died, he actually took upon himself all of the lies, all of the deceit, all of the sexual immorality, all of the unfaithfulness, all of the selfishness, all of the pride, all of the murder, all of the hate. He took it all upon himself. He became sin for us. Why? So that, say it with me, in him. We, me, you, the world, might become something different. What is that? The righteousness of God. This is the good news. This is how he makes us good enough. See, here's what takes place when a person trusts Christ. All their sin is put on Jesus. He becomes sin for us. And the one who never sinned, the one who was perfect, the one who was spotless, when we trust in him, his righteousness, his obedience to the Ten Commandments and every commandment God had, has given us, his goodness is by faith transferred to our account. The biblical terminology or the theological terminology would be imputed. It's imputed. It's a received. It's a transferred righteousness. Not of ourselves, not because we got our act together and we started going to church and we quit drinking and we quit smoking and we quit lying. No, that's all self-righteousness. I'm not talking about you getting your, quote, act together and now I can start going to church. No, it's not like that. It's a received goodness. 
It's a transferred righteousness. How does that happen? When a person reaches out in faith to Jesus Christ and the righteousness of the Son of God is transferred to your account as a free gift, unearned and unmerited. That is the good news of the gospel. Is anybody excited about that? It'll heal your soul. Watch out, it'll heal your soul. So, what would happen if a person bought that idea? What would happen if, if a person believed that? Not just in their head, but assimilated that truth into their heart. How would, a person, how would such a person go through the rest of their life and live? In a world that says, you're not good enough, smart enough, big enough, fast enough, educated enough, experienced enough. And all that stuff kind of continues on because we live in a world like that. Like, how would such a person live in that reality? Do you think they can live above the defeated attitude that says, I'm going to throw in the towel? Do you think they can live above the self-hatred and the self-condemnation that comes from that message of you're not good enough? Do you think they would live above the, the, the rebellion that comes with saying, oh, I'm not good enough, so I might as well be really bad? Do you think they would be able to live free from the, the obsession of constantly using the job or, or their children or, or their business to become good enough? Yes or no? Do you think they could let that stuff go? Because finally, at the core of their being, at the soul level, they hear God the Father say, you are good enough. I think so. See, when Jesus was baptized in Matthew chapter 3, you can read it when you get home, verse 17. He comes up out of the water. John the Baptist baptized. He comes up out of the water. The Spirit of God in the form of a dove shows up. And then the Father speaks from heaven in an audible voice. Does anybody know what the father says off the top of their head? He says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Everybody look at him. Everybody, eyes on him. This is my son. I, am abs I absolutely adore him. I love him. He, I embrace him. He's my son. And guess what? Because you trusted Christ. The goodness that was in the Son has been transferred to your account. So when God the Father now now looks down at you, what does he see? Does he see your goodness? Your badness? Does he see your performance? Does he look at your performance at all? What does he see to determine whether or not he's okay with you? What does he see? He sees the very righteousness of his Son, and he says to you, you are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's the healing of the soul right there. All the self-hatred, all the defeat, all the rebellion, all the obsession. We can let it all go. All through high school, I was dedicated, as I mentioned, to play basketball. Because I wanted to be good enough. To my mom and dad, to, you know... Not that I had a bad upbringing, it was just a competitive thing and two older brothers and had to find my way to kind of establish a sense of dignity and significance. So I used basketball to do it. I was pretty successful at it, got recruited in high school and I went to go play my freshman year of basketball at uh, New York University, which was fine. If I would have stayed there, I probably would have had a really good career. And, but I had just become a Christ follower in that little window in my senior year and 
being a new believer in New York City, trying to grow your faith, it's not, a, it's not an easy thing. So I knew I had to get out of New York City and try to find a different, different place to, to grow my faith. So I chose Liberty University, who just won their first game ever in the NCAA tournament. Go Flames. Okay, okay. I think they play today. Anyway, so, so I transferred to Liberty, and I, I'm like, well, I'm a basketball player, so I'll walk on the team. I know they didn't recruit me or anything like that, but I think I can make the team, and so I did, and I made the practice squad. And they kind of redshirted me or whatever, and they said, hey, maybe next year we'll give you a jersey, but you're on the team for now, and started practicing every day. And, and I realized something at the Division I level of basketball, it's a different, it's a different scenario. Like, they, they, you know, there's, there's, it's just all consuming with, with tape and working out and practice, and you just eat with the team, and you're basically not even a college student, you're, a, you're, you're an athlete. So I was like, man, I just want to explore my faith, I want to do different things, Liberty's a great place. And so I had a choice to make. Was I going to, could I give up basketball, which had been my life for the previous five years or, you know, six years or whatever. And you know what it came down to? It came down to a question of, am I good enough without basketball? And you know what I heard God say to me, and you know how I was able to walk away from the game in a, at a professional level or at a, at a collegiate level? I heard God say, you're good enough without basketball. I walked away. Started getting involved in other things. I could have never done that without hearing God the Father say, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Not because of your performance, not because of what you do on the basketball court, not because of anything else, but because of the righteousness that, righteousness that has been transferred to your account. You see what happens when you're in Christ? Are you in Christ? That's the question today. Are you in Christ? It will be freedom. It will be healing. The self-hatred, the, the obsession, the competitiveness, the drive, all of that stuff goes away if you are living in Christ. My hope is that you will take these truths today and you will absorb them. You will assimilate them into your soul so that you can be free. Free from what? This lie that you'll never be good enough. Ball's in your court. And there's some of you here today that, you know, you need to make a decision to be in Christ in the sense that you need to trust in him like for the first time ever. Like you need to become his child. And here's the message for you. God, the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. The Apostle Paul said it differently in Romans chapter 4, verse 25. Jesus was handed over to die because of our sins. Watch this. And he was raised to life to make us right with God. You need to be made right with God. You've known it for some time. You've put it off. I'm not talking about joining a religion or joining a church. I'm talking about you becoming right with God. You beginning a relationship with him. Listen, he died on the cross to do that. And he was raised to life so that you could be reconciled with God. Jesus did that. Will you trust him today? Will you put your faith in him today? Will you ask him to wash you of your sin? Will you ask him to forgive you? Will you receive his grace today? I'm gonna to say a simple prayer. And I hope, I hope that you take these words if you've never done this before and you make them your own and you trust in Christ today. Receive his righteousness. Have your sins transferred to him. Have his righteousness transferred to you. And finally, finally hear the words from God. You are good enough. Will you pray? Take these words, make them your own. In this moment, in the silence of your heart,
Let's talk to him. Do business with God. Dear Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sin. I believe you paid the price. So right now, I ask you to forgive me and cleanse me and wash me of all my sin. Remove the shame, the guilt. I receive your righteousness today by faith. Set me free from the discouragement, the defeatedness, the self-hatred, the rebellion, the obsession. Help me to let it go. I choose today to hear your voice that I am good enough in Christ. I pray this in his name. you just prayed that prayer, our church wants to rejoice with you, don't we, guys? Come on, nice and loud. Amen. Come on, raise it high. Amen. God's doing a wonderful work. People are coming to Christ. Hey, if you did that at any of our campuses online, we want to put a Bible in your hands today. It's a copy of the New Testament. We believe with all of our heart in Romans 12, 2, that we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. We want to put one of these in your hands. We want to challenge you to begin reading it. As God changes the way we think, our feelings change, our emotions change, and then our behavior changes, and then our life changes. So grab one of these at the back of the auditorium, uh, wherever you're at. If you did that online, there's a little place there you can check that says, I trusted Christ. Put your address in there, and we'll send one to you in the mail. One more time. Can we give God glory, guys? Come on, nice and loud. Amen. Hey, here's the deal. Before you go, before you go, I know, I know we're getting ready to go. Everybody's hungry and this tournament to watch and all that stuff. Go Liberty. Anyway, um, before you go, before you go, next week we're starting a series called Savage Jesus. Okay? A little bit crazy. It sounds a little bit unholy. I, I, I know, I, but you, I'm telling you, this series is going to rock your face off. Okay? So here's what I want you to do. I want you to bring your friends that, that, that's, that you know, don't really like church or religion. They are going to get a picture and glimpse of Jesus. Jesus, and I'm telling you, they're, they're going to fall in love with him, okay, with his way of doing things. So invite your friends next week. Savage Jesus. Let's pray and we'll get out of here. Lord, we love you. Thank you so much that although in, in our culture, in our world, we're, we, we often find out that we're not good enough. But when we turn to your son, Father, when we turn to Jesus in faith, his goodness is transferred to our account. And we finally can hear you say, we're good enough in your son. Thank you for that truth. May it transform our lives. May it set us free from all that's holding us back. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Love you guys. See you next week. Bring a friend.